Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. On today's show, we'll be preparing you for an autumn of looking and watching, whether that's on the small screen or perusing the walls of art galleries. We'll be covering big-hitting comebacks by some of TV's most beloved shows, as well as a brand-new Scottish crime drama. Don't be surprised if we begin to use the term brooding. And we'll be looking at the most exciting new exhibitions, both sides of the Atlantic, including photography from one of the field's most celebrated practitioners to tapestries and etchings from South Africa. And joining me in the studio to share their wit and wisdom are arts journalist Amma Rose Abrams and the TV critic and broadcaster Scott Bryan. Welcome both to the studio. Lovely to have you here. Thanks for having me along. Yes. Well, let's start in the mood of the day, I suppose. We're broadcasting this. This is going out on Monday the 19th of September, a momentous and sad day for lots of people in the UK, across the world as well. Scott, I'm going to come to you first as... As a TV critic, you've obviously been watching a lot of black ties and black suits and national broadcasters here in the UK in a state of mourning, but perpetual broadcasting as well. So how how do you read how each of the broadcasters has done it, maybe specifically with the BBC? I mean, it's been seismic. The fact that, of course, they had plans in place for what happened uh, when the Queen died... But I think there's something about witnessing it being rolled out in real time. Like, of course, we had experiences with Prince Philip's death last year. The fact that all BBC programmes are kind of joined together, mm. all BBC radio programmes, not just in the UK, but around the world, are joined together as one broadcast. But then just having to sort of witness the news presenters, witness the live reaction and witness kind of the disruption to our lives. On Thursday, for example, when the news broke, about 7.9 million people were watching BBC One during Hugh Edwards' announcement. But then if you add up all of the main traditional linear channels, BBC One, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, that was about 15, 16 million were all watching that. But then if you think about Radio 2... It was going to be unavoidable. You were going to hear about it pretty much between half six and seven o'clock. And I think it's one of those moments in which you'll remember where you were when you heard that broadcast. And of course, you know, you could have been seeing it on social media too. So I think there's certainly going to be some people saying, you know, we need to have alternative programming. We need to have an option for some light relief. And I think broadcasters have been treading carefully of trying to provide some alternatives whilst also not trying to distract from the gravity of this huge, important news moment. And also, just as a final point, I thought it was really interesting that when Prince Philip passed away, and the BBC received about 100,000 complaints, basically saying there was too much coverage. But according to a report last week by The Guardian, the BBC only received on that initial day about 600 complaints in relation to the Queen. So I think that to a great degree of viewers, they actually found that the gravitas, but also the scale of the announcement and also the subsequent programming was actually justified. I think they, they do think that. And perhaps aided people to understand the situation, get their own feelings in order, in a way. When you see it, it's across all TV and radio yeah. channels, at least here in the UK. It helps you to take stock, I suppose. I mean, a few of our listeners on this station might disagree with that as well, like, like they have throughout the country, throughout the world. But yeah, it's a real thing. And it seemed to me personally as well that a lot of the broadcasters showed some phenomenal metal, especially in their live broadcasts. I mean, there's nothing um, like there's, doing a live so broadcast. It's so difficult yeah. to the amount of 
mournful and respectful kind of filling in a way commentary on and sort of unprecedented events is a phenomenal skill and it seems to me that they rose very well to it but also as another quick side point we're now in an age now that if you don't want to be involved in watching the footage you can then be watching streaming services you can then be watching as many shows as you want to online and on demand i think it is dominating. There are so many programs and so many interruptions, but at the same time, you can still find more means of distraction than perhaps 10 years ago and 20 years ago. Yeah, and we should point out that if you any of the streaming services, all that programming is still there. You can go and watch some riotous comedy. It just hasn't been freshly uploaded. Yes. Onto, for example, yes, exactly. the iPlayer. Yeah. Okay, so back into our normal programming. Unfortunately, you queued up one of your choices, Scott, I suppose, is season five of The Crown, no less, that premieres in November later this year. Where are we in the story, in the sort of fictionalised, I should say, story of The Crown? So in the fictionalised story of The Crown, of course, there's been four series so far. It has a tendency to replace the entire cast every two series. So just when you get used to all of the characters and all of the depictions and you working out whether the depiction is actually any good, they then turf them out and they then replace them with a whole new set of actors. So, for example, this time round, as The Crown reaches the 1990s, got Imelda Staunton playing Queen Elizabeth II. You've got Jonathan Price as Prince Philip. Leslie Manville as Princess Margaret. Looking forward to that. Yes, you've got Dominic West as Prince Charles. Elizabeth Debicki as Diana. And Marcia Warren as the Queen Mother. And of course, you know, the 1990s are known as being a tumultuous time for the royal family. Of course, you've got the marriage disintegration between Prince Charles and Diana. Uh, you've also got the winds of fire. You know, the 1992 was known as being a Annus Horribilis. Yeah, quite, quite bad Horribilis. in my Latin. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's. Uh... Yeah. yeah, it was a good one. <laughs> right? The yes. fire seems to be the horrible, like, the dripping icing on the cake. So I think that that will lead to, obviously, I think it will make people realise how much has changed, you know, in three decades. And also I just think that it will make people realise kind of the King Charles that we know so well now versus the King Charles from back then. And I thought it was interesting that there was a YouGov survey that said that asking, saying, will Charles make a good king? And 63% of respondents said yes. That was up by 30% on just a few months ago. So I think it shows that the popularity, but maybe in the drama, he might not have such a positive portrayal. So it'll be interesting to see kind of whether the drama will feed into what people think of King Charles, whether they'll ignore it, whether they'll think the depiction is going to be reflective. Yeah, and it feels so much like this is kind of almost an alternative. I mean, it is an alternative history, yeah, this, it's, this it's series. Yeah. But at the time this is going out in November, here we are in September, two months later, it feels almost like a hot take on, yeah. on history at this period, doesn't it? I suppose with, with all that we've been talking about today and at the top of the programme. Amorose, your ears pricked up. Uh, Leslie Manville as Princess Margaret. Yeah, I think that's going to be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Love her. And I'm just hoping for, you know, that kind of amazing interjection into the hot take in history, that fun, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's a great role to get your teeth into and a phenomenal actress to get her teeth into that role. Thank you, Scott. We'll probably have to leave The Crown next. We've done real-life Crown at the top of the programme. So that is The Crown. That is on Netflix, and that's Series 5, premiering in November 2022. And Rose, your first choice is down in N1 at the Victoria Miro Gallery. Tell us a little bit about this one. This is a 
got a fantastic curatorial premise. Yes. Don't know if anyone follows uh, the great woman artists on Instagram or follows Katie Hessel's podcast, but she's built on that now and she has released a book and the book is called The Story of Art Without Men and the release of the book was marked by an exhibition at Victoria Miro called The Story of Art As It's Still Being Written. And it's an exhibition of female artists. So the history yeah. of art without men is obviously a from whatever pre-Renaissance through the epochs. Yes. Is this all contemporary work? It's all contemporary work and it's a really great snapshot on amazing female painters that are working at the moment. And there's a great selection to choose from. There mm. is a lot of exciting work, painting in general at the moment, a lot of exciting painting by women. And so we've got, and some photography as well, we've got Zanelli Maholi, who obviously had her their Tate retrospective recently, and um, Celia Paul, much loved. Yeah. Amy Sherald, who has a solo show coming up that's opening during Freeze, is a wonderful American painter, does these kind of really pastely gorgeous kind of portraits based on... On historical forms and then there's the young British artist Samaya Critchlow who there's been a lot of excitement around mm. her and I think it's going to be really nice and there's Tracy Emin in there as well I think it's going to be lovely to see these artists that have been showcased on their own but together in yeah. quite a relaxed and casual way and you said it's predominantly painting there's a bit of photography in here as well is painting the medium that it is perhaps the most it's the it's the biggest it's the biggest beast to wrestle away from the world of men men curate male curators and male artists. Is it the kind of kind of artistic elephant in the room really, that that women women artists have wrestled away? It is, and I think that this is because, and partly this is the, what Katie has shown with her work and many other journalists and chroniclers as well, is the fact that we see paintings in the national in galleries, museums all over the world, and then what they exploded in one fell swoop was, oh, there have been paintings by women and of women and of, you know, people of colour around for as long as these paintings have been around. You just haven't seen them. And that's why I think painting is so crucial for this because it's almost like we can look at the contemporary work, but it's this kind of dominance that painting has over the art world. It's authority that people want because it speaks on so many different levels. I've looked at some of the work in this show on the Victoria Mirror website purely. A lot of it's figurative and the, the gaze, the female body, even the female gaze looking at the male body, whatever it might be, that again is the thing. That again is something to fought over, I suppose, less than abstraction or, or certainly landscapes or these sorts of things, right? Absolutely. It's yeah. about people painting people and those decisions and what people have seen. And I think the moment that everybody realised that there were these paintings out there and that there was a dearth of paintings of a variety of people, there became a hunger to see paintings of those people. Yeah. And... I think people are still very hungry for it. I think people are showing it because it's popular. Yeah, and, and if people, if anyone cares to adore Clicker for this show at Victoria Miro, and that Clicker were able to tell if visitors were men or women, there's no <laughs> greater numbers of women to go and see women artists as there are. It's not like this is going to be a women's show for women, is it? I mean, that's a kind of sort of daily malification, I suppose, of when, well, why is this all just women? That's but the proven fact in art world visitor numbers and gender uh, numbers Absolutely. as well, right? Yeah, yeah. It's always an interesting one. It, it feels something like it seems bonkers that we're kind of queuing up for good reason, but a, a show by a woman, by a woman gallerist 
and a woman curator of women artists in September 2022 somehow. Exactly, exactly. There's something. I'm raising my eyebrows in the studio. No one can see it. (laughs) (laughs) And this runs, I guess this is from the 8th of of September until the 1st of October. So running just um, shy of Freeze, I suppose, as well. So the other show you mentioned, is that running through Freeze, that other female artist, is that on at Victoria Mirror? That 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 is on at Hauser and Worth, the Amy Sherrill show, and that's opening at the beginning of Freeze Week. Keep your eyes peeled for that as well. Amarose, thank you very much. Scott, we're going to go back to where we were going to begin with, and that is industry. On HBO in August, this is tough, hedonistic, (laughs) sort of teeth-grinding lunacy. Once you work at Pierpoint, you've arrived. Do you trust me? Where is the evidence I should? If you click me out of a phone call while executing, you will never hear from me again. This is a bit of bloodletting and king-making. The best idea wins. What's the best idea? Mine. What a way to end have a little glass of wine yeah. and watch people be horrible to each other for a full hour. Um, we've just done the crown. Yeah, well, okay. sorry, we're on to we're the industry. Oh, okay, okay we're on to the industry. Different firm. You know, no, no. I mean, I think this drama... It's really interesting. I mean, it is created by Conrad Kay with his friend Mickey Down. And the initial first series looks at a set of graduates who are all trying to compete for work at a prestigious investment bank. And, of course, not all of them are able to get onto that job. We all know about that industry generally, of it being incredibly competitive, incredibly cutthroat, you know, pretty much that they would create this environment to um, allow you know, backstabbing, manipulation. And... You might be thinking to yourself, why am I watching this? But then I wonder, <laughs> why do we all love Succession? Why do we all watch shows such as House of the Dragon, Game of Thrones? You know, so many of these characters can be incredibly evil, incredibly manipulative. And yet we come back each and every week. I think part of it maybe is in our heads that we want them to suffer a comeuppance. I think sometimes we might think part of us want to be them be that person to kind of think to ourselves we all want to be good people Sometimes, am I that person well, yes yeah <laughs> but also you might be thinking well what if I was bad you know, what yeah. if I really wanted to do bad things could I actually still make it in life I think sometimes you might have sympathy for these people because you might be wondering how they ended up in that situation but also I think there's a kind of a are they terrible people because of the environment that they're in? You know, were they initially good and then they turned terrible or were they always terrible to begin with? And this is them allowing them to spread their wings a bit. So there's many so there's sort of age old and very delicious sort of story arc and characterization going on there, right? It's yes. a sort of age old philosophical nature or nurture kind of question that's being acted out in this sort of hyper-corporate, hyper-financialised sort of environment. Yeah, super-duper. And like the case that you have no idea what anyone is saying to each other half the time because <laughs> the dialogue is all gobbledygook. A lot and of jargon. Loads of jargon. Okay. And, and in a way, you might think that that would alienate you, but it weirdly compels you. But this is the thing. It's I suppose marmite. it's dehumanising as well, isn't it? Yes. The, the jargon side of it. It's but it makes like, it realistic. It yeah. makes it realistic. And, and I think it feeds into this sort of idea of where do we get enjoyment from this sort of show? I think it's kind of very much down to how we're feeling, the mindset that we're in. But it's Marmite. 
you yeah. might hate it. I did kind of hate it. Yeah. But I kind of felt that really for all that they were doing, the stakes were quite low. Mm. I was like, I remember there was one, I think I gave up on it when um, one of the main characters, she just pulled something off and then she just went and stayed in a hotel and ate a burger and I was like, oh, great. Yeah, where's was, the Coke and the champagne? But it was it was like, okay, you know, they just seem to not really be... It's like, so you've done all this really bad stuff and then you're just kind of carrying on. Yeah. It didn't seem like they were really getting anything from it. Yeah, it's like that, the lack of moral compass. Yeah. But it means that they don't necessarily suffer the consequences of their own actions that you might think they should be experiencing. Yeah, but maybe that's just life. And then maybe that's a big part of it. But I kind of felt like I wanted them to have more fun. It's a sort of... It sort of makes your teeth itch a bit. It's an uncomfortable watch, but we've all we've all been like it. We all know people like it. And we all know that all sorts of work environments, whether they're, you know, a well-known bank and it's for sort of billions of dollars, mm. or whether it's, you know, any work environment, kind of all the same politics pertain, right? That's yeah, yeah. And I think it's one of those real realisations of, oh, you could be earning a lot of money, but you also could be very unhappy. Yeah. So it's better to not be in an industry. I know for a fact that I would last a morning working for a company like this. You just need the, a sheet, a sort of a cheat sheet with the jargon on the top. <laughs> I can see it in you. I can see the, oh, really? the brutal 80s capitalist in you. Come on, yes, it's going to be fine. truly. <laughs> no, trust me, I wouldn't be able to find the blooming door pass to get into the building. Like, that'll be it. That'll be it. That is industry, which is sort of floating our boat from some of the wrong, some of the right reasons. That's premiering on HBO in August and it's coming to BBC One and BBC iPlayer at the end of September. How do we get from there to one of the big beasts of the art world? I wonder. This is William Kentridge at the Royal Academy. Amma Rose, well, what a wonderful human being. What a brilliant artist. Exactly. And talking yeah. about people taking on enorm enormities. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking today about why people love him so much, why people love William Kentridge. And yeah. I think it's partly because he took on this conversation that was so difficult to have. You know, he's a South African artist, he grew up in apartheid partially, not he's, a white, he's a white, white man. White, yeah, yeah, white man. And he took it on. And he took it on in a way that people could connect over. And that has won him hearts and minds. Yeah. And he's also just a wonderful artist. And he tackles his subject from all these different angles and surprising mediums, drawing, film, animation, tapestry. He really is kind of an experimental artist still, even though he's you know, 40 years in. Yeah, he's he's an amazing thing of being phenomenally high achieving in all these different media and not getting stuck in a rut, not doing the same thing. His lessons, his sort of lessons for us, I've got one of his books, which is Six Drawing Lessons, and that is an amazing thing. I have put pencil to paper. I won't be showing either of you the results. Thanks to that book. It's a kind of mental map. It's a training oh, book. It's a sort of nominal thing. It's like Haruki Murakami is what I talk about when I talk about running kind of thing. You don't have to be a marathon runner at the end of it. It's about the thought process. William Kentridge, anyway, no one wants to know what I think about William Kentridge. What will this show at the Roller Is this new work? Is this a sort of retrospective what have we got it's a mixture it's a, it's just a big exhibition mm -hmm. i think it's what we would call a survey and then that's he... the word i was struggling around <laughs> <laughs> struggling to find thank you so so we've got some older pieces got some really important pieces for big fans there's a conservationist ball which is from 1985 which i think people see as like his hot period 
And then there's going to be 25, it's huge, there's 25 drawings and then they were made for creative process for drawings for production. There is going to be several films and the preparatory works for those. It's really going to be a massive, massive show. And I think for people who've maybe, I think a lot of the shows he's had recently or exhibitions, it's been one big work. He did a massive work in Rome a few years ago and he designed an opera. And then so there's, we've had little snapshots of him, even though he is a great. And I think there was a show at Marion Goodman at his commercial gallery. But this is really, there hasn't been a show like this for a long time. So it's a chance for people to take a deep dive into his work at the RA and really soak all of that up. It's a bit of a funny one. I wonder if he's appreciated as much as maybe, I won't say he should be, but he's one of those people that's phenomenally important. That art, He's an artist's artist, I think, perhaps, in a way. You know what I mean? I wonder what the public think, maybe the British public, the international public. I know he means a lot to South Africa and he means a lot to the contemporary art world and is referenced and is represented probably his country in Venice, etc. But I wonder what he means to the average museum visitor. I think he might be a name that people know. Mm. And I think if you, you would, maybe they will have an idea of what he does, but they won't know his work in depth and they may, might know it touches on apartheid. They'll know he's South African. But I think this is a chance. It really is a chance for people to get to know the work of this great artist because really he's an artist's artist, but he's had so much impact. And there's something very holistic about his work. And at a time when we are having a lot of combative conversations about difficult subjects, to see someone deal with it with such grace is healing, maybe. Beautifully put. That is his stock, one of his stocks in trade. And humour as yeah. well, because yeah. he's kind of... He's a bit of a furrow-browed... He's quite an intense-looking guy, but he's very, very playful. And as you say, exceptionally artistically light on his feet to be designing opera sets and making films and these huge kind of tree sculptures that he does and all these different things. I mean, he's yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. I'm really looking forward to that show. I think that's going to be wonderful. Thanks for the tip. Um, that is William Kentridge, um, and he's at the Royal Academy from the 24th of September to the 11th of December 2022. Don't know why I said it like that. Dramatic. Yeah, pointlessly dramatic. Do you want to get dramatic, Scott, with Karen Pirrie? 1996. 19-year-old barmaid was found strangled. Rosie Duff murder would have been all over the news. Uh, I was three, sir. You haven't got time to waste on this. No, I suppose it'll be 26 years soon, eh? The original investigation was negligent. This is your first murder case. Are you saying they put me on this because I'm a woman? We've all got something to lose. We were young. We were drunk. I mean, this is not a... that dramatic a title. Well, no, it's not a but... dramatic a title, but it is quite dramatic in its content. Of course, this is an ITV crime drama. There are a million ITV say. crime dramas. <laughs> I saw one quite recently where Adrian Dunbar, yep. so of course from Line of Duty, solves a crime in ninety minutes on ITV. Then he sings in a jazz bar for some reason. Like, I've read about this, but I haven't seen it. He sings in every episode. And it's like sure. Okay, thank you very much. That was the bit that he presumably ad-libbed with the with the producer or the director, and he's like, "I've always wanted to." Um... In his contract, it's like, "I will going to sing." Yeah, and then it's like, "Oh, oh he's got okay. to a certain level where he's like." told you how much I love the works of Gershwin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and everyone's gone, Adrian, <clears throat> can you just... 
Actually, let's do 20 more minutes of writing. Yes, yes. And of course, every ITV crime drama is interspersed with a sofa advert every 15 minutes. But um, Karen Privy stands out to me because it does look like it is going to be really good. I mean, it's written by Ema Kenny. It's based on the book by Val McDermid, The mm. Distant Echo. It's about a case in St Andrews and I saw a bit of it and like Scotland just perfect for this sort of uh, crime drama. It's set in 1996 following a murder, but then a podcast at 25 years on tries to work out the unsolved case and tries to get to the bottom of it. And I think it relishes in 90s nostalgia because there's a lot of flashbacks to the 90s. Sometimes can, you know, feel like the 90s are more 90s than the 90s. Um, (laughs) But we love it so. And I just think it's a very well structured, very interestingly told story. So, yes, of course, there will be crime dramas on ITV until the end of time, but once in a while you get a gem, and I think this is going to be one of their gems. Yeah, as you said, a Van McDermott novel adapted by Amy Kennedy, it's got good bones, and it? it's got yes. good DNA. And it's got Bill Patterson in it, who oh, you know, is in Fleabag, House of a Dragon. Yeah. When I see Bill Patterson, I'm like, it's good, it's got Bill Patterson in it, done. It's like, got a good face. Yes. Good Scottish face. Good Scottish face, good Scottish demeanour. I, I am Scottish. Don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> and each episode is 120 minutes long. Yes. Kind of like that. That's something to get your teeth into. That's serious. That's not like let's squeeze it in before the news at 10. No, but like I think it's interesting that ITV are doubling down on their own streaming service mm. also coming out because we all know that the ITV hub is terrible and is going to go. So they're replacing it with a new streaming service called ITVX, which despite a terrible name is going to be having a lot of dramas so much content launching on this streaming service even though we are at a time and there is so much competition and I guess kind of this feeling of there's too many streaming services some are going to go ITV are pressing ahead with their own and the idea is it will be a free subscription service a bit like the you know, so it's similar one a lot of advertising but there's a lot of dramas on there and a lot of good dramas there's one on uh, called Nolly there's a Russell T Davis drama on the way I think the idea is they feel constrained by having dramas that are, have to be on at 8pm, 9pm, have to be a full ITV hour, can only be 40 minutes or 120 minutes with sofa adverts. The idea with ITV X is that they get a bit more breathing space. I guess the issue is, are viewers going to turn to it? Because they might feel that actually it's a little bit too too little too late. But I guess I suppose they're maybe they're branding themselves up also as the as the home of drama. That's where you get it. The BBC does other stuff, maybe blah yeah. blah blah. Yeah. It does comedy. It does lots of other things that you might want to binge watch. ITV is maybe positioning itself as the drama. And they do drama. They do drama very well. Mm. Do you think there's something great about being able to rebrand your streaming service now? Now everyone's done it, and yeah. everyone's got it. What they done? What they think was going to be amazing and perfect and right, and it's still really difficult to find things to watch online. Yes, yes. And yes. so, really, maybe this is a great opportunity for them. Yes, or I, I want to have a streaming service that doesn't have to have the word plus in it. Yeah, that would be nice. Well. At the beginning of that bit, Scott was talking about a drama called Karen Piri, which yes. is coming to ITV. At one point I mentioned it. Yes. At, one, at one point. And that is date TBC, but that's this autumn. And finally, we're going to MoMA in New York City with Amarose Abrams as our guide and uh, Wolfgang Tillmans as our artist. Wonderful. Wolfgang What a dream Tillmans. team. It is. It is the dream team, isn't it? And also I feel like his images are ones that I grew up with. Mm. Leafing through ID... 
he's somebody that a whole generation of people grew up with and defined a lot of people of experiences. Part, you know, he depicted gay life, but he also depicted a very specific kind of modern contemporary living, you know, kind of exemplified maybe in early days of Hackney and now he's moved to Berlin and it really represents a lot how a lot of people feel about how they wanted to live their lives. And so I think it's really exciting that he's getting this retrospective at 54, you're quite young. Yeah, maybe it's a survey. Maybe it's a survey. I think it might Touché. be. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I love Wolfgang Tillmans. He's a lovely man. He's a brilliant artist. There's something, not to take anything away from his work, it's almost like there's no one in the way of you experiencing that image. It's almost like there's no artist's hand. And that's not to belittle his brilliance as an artist, but his work is so honest and so passionate. And the people he depicts seem to be just in front of your eyes without without any intervention, without a screen, or without a frame around it somehow. That's such a rare trick for an artist, even a great artist, to be able to do. Something, I don't know, for me, does that sort of tick any of your boxes at uh, Amarose with him? I mean, he just seems, yes. seems to kind of be able to encapsulate moments brilliantly. Perfectly. And mm. there's wonderful intimacy as well in some of the moments. Just a hand or mm. two hands or somebody. I really love, there's a picture of, I think, maybe his partner cutting his toenails which is just such a wonderful image. And then there is really famous shots as well, like the kiss. Yeah. And it just, yeah, intimacy and this ability to make you feel like you can just reach into the picture, that you're part of the moment, I think is really beautiful. And then these amazing abstract images too and landscapes, which he, where he's kind of played around a bit more, he's had a bit more of a hand in it. Mm-hmm. Those are also, I think, really, really stunning and interesting images. And then recently he's obviously got more political as well. I read in the New York Times that he is considering running for office in, in Germany. Germany. Yeah. Oh, wow. OK. I think after... He was very involved in the Brexit campaign and yeah. he made artworks. He came in here and talked about it, actually. Oh, yeah. He talked about his work for the sort of uh, Remain side of the of the Brexit debate as well. And he's sort of very passionate about that. I suppose it's all part of his brilliance as a communicator as well. So he's, he's cashing in his chips or hopes to as a communicator for real, I suppose. Yeah, potentially, which is really, really interesting. But maybe it also goes to his social responsibility as well and his genuine desire to connect with people and to be of the people which is maybe why people love his images so much and why they feel so universal he's a great person for sort of straddling the commercial world as you say he you know he still shoot he still does editorial projects i think you know you can you can ring him up and get him to shoot something for your magazine potentially and he's obviously got this big big show at the moment and i mean obviously he's had shoe shows all over the world I don't know whether he's been in Biennale land. I'm sure he has. But it's an amazing thing to not to sort of treat all those imposters just the same as an artist of this stature, of that age, all the rest of it. He could have started to take himself very seriously, which I think he, he takes himself seriously and he takes his work seriously. But I don't ever get the sense that he's having someone tell you that this is great art. It's you know fresh. I mean? With an echo on it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You feel like sometimes you feel like you could see one of those pictures in ID. Yeah, you, you still feel like surprised. that, don't you? And yeah. that's, I think that's in its favour. And that is the wonderful Wolfgang Tillmans. Uh, it's Moma's Big Show. It's taking us from September the 12th this year until January the 1st next in New York City. Thank you, Scott and Amarose, very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. 
And that is all we have time for today. Thank you to my guests, Emma Rose Abrams and Scott Bryan. And to recap, we discussed the TV shows The Crown, Industry and Karen Pirrie. And we talked about the exhibitions, The Story of Art as It's Still Being Written at Victoria Miro, William Kentridge at the Royal Academy and Wolfgang Tillmans at MoMA. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph edits the show. Our researcher this week was Tamsin Howard. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. 